Hey guys, just Josh here. Welcome to Ballarat Talks. Proudly sponsored by the Region Cinema. Jeez, you, yeah, you, yeah. you put the balls on the line there. Yeah, I was. <laughs> just, just, just. No, I moved, I moved out of home when I was 14, so it sort of comes really? My face. Oh, the phone, the phone's going to ring off the hook. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, guys, with Howard Clark. Alright, today's guest is uh, quite well known around town. Uh, I've got the pleasure of meeting him for the first time today. He's won seven Herald Sun Shields as the head coach of St. Pat's Footy. He's the father of three boys. He was diagnosed with cancer at the young age of 18 and has since had 42 treatments or touched more, potentially. I'll have to ask you, ask you a bit more about that. Um, and from what I've told, you couldn't get a better man to mentor your kid. Welcome, Howard Clark, to Ballarat Talks. Thanks, Josh. It's, uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. No, I really appreciate you taking the time. Like It's fantastic. So yesterday, when I was doing a bit more research on this, um, I've got a, a couple of close mates that I knew went to... St. Pat's. Now, I'm going to read you out for a start what his response was, and I want to see if you know him. So, obviously, you've helped a lot of people in your time. So, he said to me, he goes, I was very lucky enough to play two years of, of first 18s under him as coach, as coach, 2004 and 2005. He coached us to the Herald Sun Shield in 2005, and he went on to coach many, many more. But we were the first group he took there to win. Pretty sure every Saints play. Pretty sure every St. Platts player that went into the AFL, onto the AFL, have Howard to thank. The professional footy program that he created held his guys at excellent stead to pursue their professional footy careers. From a personal point of view, the man is so inspiring. What he has achieved and the challenges he continues to overcome is incredible. He helped me create my first ever resume, which led to me getting my <laughs> first job at Elders and setting me on a career path. He came along to my 21st and I have a great picture of us on the wall. You'd be interested to know that a lot of what Parker and I coached you at Navarre was directly from Howard Clark's playbook. One of my favourite quotes of his is that basketball is a contact sport and football is a collision sport. He also coined the term the great man. Uh, To be called the great man from Howard is certainly an honour. He's a really special bloke, mate, and I'm so glad that you get the chance to know him tomorrow and his story to capture for a podcast for people to listen to for many years to come. Do you know who that is? Floody. Bang, Floody. And here's his photo. What a great man. He's the photo. What a what great, a great man. man. He is a great man. So I thought that was fantastic. No, one of the nice, beautiful people. Oh, he's, he's incredible. So you knew Parco pretty well too? Yeah, Dan Parker was great. Yeah, he was also in the uh, Herald Shield side. Yep. A border and um, he was a great mate with uh, Clinton Young who went to Haw- went on to Hawthorne. Oh, yeah, yep, yep, and, yep. Uh, Premiership player, but uh, yeah, great fellas, and um, certainly, you know, when you are fortunate enough to coach the guys, um, you develop a really you know strong relationship with them, mm. and uh, it really binds you with them. And uh, for me, you know, the, I coached for I think nineteen years, eighteen years, the first eighteen, yep. and um, probably for the last ten years, it wasn't about football. It was all about how can I make an impact on these on the lives of these young men, and you know, for me, it was all about. Um, providing them with a base that uh, when they leave the program that they leave better informed young men and men of substance and um, and men that uh, can you know go out, out like floody yep. you know and uh, buying you know his, his sheep at you know in the year <laughs> 11 and 12 and uh, just you know giving them speak about opportunities that with them and mm-hmm. um, you know it's a real it was a real privilege to be involved with in the formation of these young guys yeah definitely we'll get, we'll get on to that a bit later I, yeah. I want to start from the start though of course how yeah, so where'd you grow up yeah, a place called Tongaila, um, little little small rural town, uh, about twenty five kilometres from Echuca. Yep. Um, my family owned a uh, you know a horse stud and dairy farm. Okay. Um, the horse stud was uh, equestrian and uh, three day eventing and show jumping. Yep. Um, and uh, had a you know very privileged uh, you know lifestyle growing up um i'm one of six children um i've got wow, a twin about, yeah. got a twin sister yeah um, and also two brothers and three sisters and uh, we went to boarding school the boys went to boarding school at a school called xavier college in melbourne um years you know years nine to twelve mm-hmm. so yeah we we were very fortunate and um and uh, dad uh, had a very successful um career in um equestrian yep. and uh, i think out of eight olympic games one of his 
bloodlines. Progeny um, certainly represented Australia in the Olympic Games. So wow. he's um, he's one of uh, only very few, one of uh, about I think two in the Equestrian Hall of Fame for the Australian Hall of Fame for Equestrian. So yeah, how, his name was Howard as well. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, he's very well known in Equestrian circles. Awesome. Wow. And so you move there. So so how you go there until you're 18. So yeah. what I was reading on your document was yep. or your magazine. So you got to 18 years old and you were drafted to Melbourne, is that right? We were, uh, Tom Gaylor was, uh, was all about zoning at the time. Um, we didn't have a draft at that period. It was uh, all about zoning and Tom Gaylor was in the Melbourne zone. Okay. Um, and uh, I was fortunate enough to play, you know, what they called Teal Cup at the time. Teal Cup was for, um, Vic, you know, was now it's Vic Country and Vic Metropolitan. Yep. But uh, it was a purely Victorian side and I was fortunate enough to play Two years Teal Cup at uh, sixteen and seven, well, really seven, sixteen, seventeen, yep. and I was zoned to Melbourne, and I got picked up at Melbourne, and um, and before I turned eighteen, uh, I was turned eighteen on the April, uh, January the second, um, I went down to Melbourne, and then on January three, I was diagnosed with cancer and I had surgery that day, so. Yeah, that began a long battle and uh, yeah. probably a journey, a journey I've at, ever been on. At 18? Yeah. It's pretty rough. Um, did, what was going, I can't even imagine what was going through your head. Like, what was going through your head? Or you didn't really quite, yeah. quite comprehend it? Or? Uh, probably more more the second one. Um, I was actually quite relieved. Um, if it sounds crazy, I know, but for that 12-month period in my year 12 year, um, I, was, I was experiencing a lot of back pain um, and I was getting a lot of referred pain down my legs. I remember doing the year 12 exams on a beanbag so I couldn't sit in, in a seat. Oh, wow. Um, I remember Christmas Day of my of that 2000, 19, no, 1982. Yep. Um, I remember sitting on, sit on the floor. I couldn't sit on a seat. I remember going to one of my best mates' 18th birthday in Shepparton. He's, both his parents are doctors. And um, the entire night I spent on, on the floor, lying on the ground on a, on a stretcher bed. And um, I was just relieved that there was something there. And I remember having a bath um, between Christmas and year of 82, and um, mum's a nurse, and um, I said to my mum, I couldn't you know, feel my legs, and I couldn't actually feel any of the water. And uh, so from the waist down, I'd really lost all sensation. Yeah. And um, to be finally diagnosed with something, I'd been, probably been to uh, 18 doctors, and had up in various diagnostic tests, tests in the 1982 year, and um, they found nothing. And um, it was only um, a myelogram, which is an injection of dye in my spinal cord, on January the second, um, by a neurosurgeon called James Cummins. Yep. And uh, fortuitously, Mum grew up with James, and um, and actually we named our younger son after James. Awesome. And um, and so James Cummins said, "Come down after Mum." Uh, went through the uh, the various um, diagnostic components that she tests that she'd gone through. So I went down and uh, he did some diagnostic tests, did reflex, worked out the reflex action in my both legs and I had very limited to none. Mm-hmm. Um, he worked out how much sensation I had in my legs. I had no, no leg sensation at all. Yep. And so I was admitted to hospital that day. The following day I had, um, the, as I said, the myelogram, an injection of dye into the spinal cord. And and it, it preceded the MRI scan that we have now. But what happened was that, that uh, there's, a, there's a dye that runs up and down your cord and uh, if there's an obstruction, it, it envelopes that obstruction and it keeps filtering down. Gotcha. In my case, um, the dye was injected into my spine. Um, it filtered down, there was an obstruction at L5 and L5 is around probably in the belt line in my spine mm-hmm. and then it continued to trickle down and uh, it was a seven centimetre, seven centimetre obstruction, which is a huge obstruction in the, um, you know, certainly in the lumbar region. And uh, I was operated on the following day. It was a 12-hour surgery. Um, and James said that uh, although it was, you know, it was a long operation and um, it was sent to pathology and uh, it was a malignancy, he did say that um, it was all encapsulated within the one area any any outliers anything on the outside of that you know area of where the um, tumor was he was able to get all the um, the relevant cells so in his view although it was a malignancy or a cancerous growth um, that he in his view that was uh, he was able to take everything so oh. for me um, it was a relief more than anything yep. um, yeah and then 
how long was it before it, it started to come back? Like how? Yeah, that was in 1983 that I had the uh, the surgery. Um, I I went to uh, teachers college in 1984, started teaching in 1987, middle of 87, and I remember that I was doing, at, I was teaching um, gymnastics or I was teaching phys ed at St. Fred's Saviour in um, primary school in the east. And I remember I was doing, demonstrating a forward somersault roll and I felt my back and uh, didn't think much of it. But um, I went to my physio, a guy called Ian Newland at the time. And Ian said, have I been back to my neurosurgeon, James Cummins? And I said, probably, I haven't probably had a scan in probably four or five years. Yep. So I made an appointment. He said, I think everything's fine. But he said, I want you to go and see your surgeon until, um, and before I, uh, you know, we go through some um, series of, you know, diagnostic tests for you and some stretching, which I went back to James. He didn't think there was much wrong. I was asymptomatic, meaning I had no symptoms, but previously there were symptoms everywhere. Yep. Um, and so James booked in an MRI scan and it took two and a half months, um, about 10 weeks, for that to become available. Oh, wow. Why is, that, is that just back, back then? It was, it was just backlog, but yeah, but probably James, like I, I, all of us, we didn't think there was a lot wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, if there was urgency, he, he would have got me in earlier. And, um, you know, much to our surprise, there was a tumour at the thoracic area. And yep. um, so that uh, started a very, probably uh, four and a five, five, six years of, um, you know, of surgery, you know, and uh, which I'll explain here in a minute. Yeah. So they, I, so I don't, I, look, I don't know crazy amounts about cancer and stuff. Yeah. So how does it work? Are they doing like your chemotherapy or they say get rid of it? So like, yeah. What's the discussion? So in my case, um, I had re- radiation treatment yep. and radiation treatment is like a, um, uh, it's like an x-ray, but they, they're putting, uh, you know, the, like a radiation in your, in your, in my case, my spinal cord. It was a very invasive, very toxic t- uh, f- sort of treatment back then. Mm-hmm. The treatments now are very filtered and they've, you know, they've come a long way in, in 38 years. Um, supposedly, no one else has survived 20 tumours and uh, 42 treatments. Mm. Um, so, you know, in my treatment I'm having now, it's very, very different to what it was back in, in 1983. And um, so what happened was that I uh, I had the treatment in the April of 1983. Yep. Had 42 treatments. Did really well, you know. Although it was um, quite toxic and it burnt a lot of my spine, I did pretty well, you know. And um, I then, uh, you know, went to teach college the next year. But in 1989, I had um, I had, a, had surgery, and what happened was that I did really well. The operation was, a, and there, there was a tumour in both the cervical, and they found one in the thoracic region, so in the neck region, also in the middle part of my spine. And uh, following the surgery, you know, it was a 14-hour operation. Yep. And um, day one. Got out of the surgery. Day two, I was up walking. Day three, I was starting to find I was really struggling to walk. Yep. And and they were saying you know, you need to you need to use it to lose it, otherwise you'll lose it. Yep. Meaning you know I need to starting to get up and walking. Um, and then I just said you know I'm really I was starting to get really hot, um, but and I was starting to find that my back was really pain in a lot of pain. And uh, I remember the physio saying, "You got to, you know, you got to keep going." And I said, "Well, I'm really seizing up here. I'm really struggling." What happened was the day later, uh, my temperature spiked at uh, about 40, 40, 41, okay. and um, it hovered around that 40, 41, you know, temperature for the next six, seven weeks. Um, what happened was that I contracted what they call golden staff. Yeah, golden yeah. staff is a hospital-bearing infection, and. Um, the cancer was never going to kill me, um, but certainly the, uh, the the golden staff certainly nearly did. Wow! I went in at 82 kilograms, um, walked in at 82 kilograms, and uh, about 11 and a half weeks later, when I came out, um, I was wheeled out at uh, just under 39 kilograms. Oh my God! So I lost, you know, forty you know, odd kilos. You're hardly recognisable. Well, like just when you lost nearly 40 40 kilos in weight, it's um it's crazy, you know, oh. it's um. 
you know, was half a body weight. So you can't eat or you're just, you're not getting fed? Like yeah, you, you, I was so sick that um, I couldn't eat because um, mm. what was happening is that my body was had the rigors really badly, which is, and rigors is when you get hot and cold sweats and your, your temperature is to such an extreme, just say 40, 41. And then I had a fan at the end of my bed and that was cooling me down. And so what was happening is I was going from really hot to really cold in split seconds, and that happened over and over and over again. So your body goes into this state of shock, and it just keeps, you know, it has a rigor reaction, which is a, a shaking reaction. And, um, you know, it's pretty scary. And, yeah. and that happened, you know, for uh, five, six weeks. For the first probably three weeks, they were express, expressing two to 300 mils of infection every two hours. And um, from a spinal cord, the way I got it, and, and I don't blame her at all, but unfortunately, one of the nurses um, obviously didn't scrub well enough when she was addressing the wounds of. There was four of us in the one ward, yep. in one room, and uh, you know she had an infection in her fingernails, and uh, when she was addressing each of our wounds, very sadly, um, it got into each of our wounds, and you know the other three, you know, we all went up to St Brennan's ward. Yep which is a um, infectious disease ward. And, uh, you know, very sadly, those three others, you know, passed away. And um, yeah, so it was a pretty difficult time. I I, I don't quite understand how you say so positive with it. Like I, I would really, really struggle. As much as I'd like to say I'd be as positive as, as you, I, I don't know what you were like at that time. Like, did you have yeah. a lot of fear or was it just like, what was getting you through that? Like, I don't quite. Yeah, it was, no. Um, there's no doubt that, you know, my illness has, has certainly formed, helped shape the person I am today. Um, but also, I was always really positive. Um, you know, I think when you have such a chronic illness, when if you if you're in negative, it's going to consume you. Oh, and, it's uh, so hard to change that it mindset, is, though. It is. You know, so you, and that's the right. That's the, what you're saying. It's the mindset. It's either positive or negative. Yeah. And uh, if you get into a state of negativity. It's really hard to to work with a um, a chronic illness, and I've always formed that opinion. So, you know, I was really fortunate, you know, that I had I had a really positive attitude. I my mum stayed with me and came in the came in every morning at about ten a.m. Yeah. nine a.m. and she's a nurse, and uh, she left probably at uh, seven p.m. every day. Wow! And uh, and that certainly helped get me through. Yeah. Um, I remember the first for the first five six weeks, I was that sick that I I didn't speak because what was happening every time that I spoke to someone, it took all the oxygen in from the room, and uh, and when, when when that person left, I um, I really you know really struggled and uh, I really declined really rapidly, mm -hmm. and so for self preservation it was all about just making sure that if, if people came. They could talk amongst themselves to each other, but I but I certainly didn't speak. Yep. Um, it was all about self-preservation at that time. Wow. Wow. Eh? Okay, so we get through that. So what happened after that <laughs> was I was in for eleven and a half weeks, and um, so then what happened was that I was getting out the day before the Hawthorne Geelong Grand Final in 1989. I had tickets. With Mum and Dad were staying with um, directors of the Hawthorne Footy Club. At the time, and um, and they gave us. We had a box at the at the uh, for the grand final, and and I remember I was getting out, and I had a I had a scan, sorry, the two days pre preceding that, and I had a scan just to make sure that everything was fine because I was going in for further treatment. None of us expected there was anything there, mm. and I'd been in for eleven and a half weeks. I was thirty nine kilograms. Had been through an interesting time to say the least and they found there was further three tumours yes. and that probably that day was probably a step more it's probably one of the most difficult days of my life at, at that stage yeah. um, so I knew that I had to go through that whole process again yeah. um, there was a tumour at each of the three regions at lumbar cervical and thoracic we also knew that I had to go in not just for one more operation, but for a minimum of two. Yeah. The reason being they couldn't operate on the three areas of my spinal cord at the one time. 
So, so yeah, so I knew that I'd had to repeat the process at a minimum of another two occasions. Yeah. What happened was that um, at this stage, I I probably hadn't broken down and cried at this stage. I don't know why, but I and I, I think I should I should have definitely because yeah. um, you know crying is a really important emotion, um, but I hadn't, and, uh, and I I got into the car. To uh, to go back to uh, the directors of the Hawthorne Club, and um, and I heard the Hawthorne theme song in leading into the grand final, and it was probably the one time that I broke down and cried. Yep. And um, are you a Hawthorne fan? I am a Hawthorne okay, fan. Okay, awesome. That's yeah. Cool. So even though I got picked up by Melbourne, um, yep. I'm a Hawthorne fan. Yep. And uh, and Mum said, "Do you want to go?" And I said, "Yeah." And I said, um, "You know, even if it's for five minutes or twenty minutes or half an hour." Let's try and go, and uh, and I went in a wheelchair. Um, Mum, you know, looked certain looked after me and uh, watched the whole game. Um, you know, saw one of the best grand finals in history and uh, completely changed my mindset. Yeah, and um, it was a really important light bulb moment in um, in my development. So that's that's the part um, where we were talking earlier. That was the part that I was reading because I obviously read the earlier part and thinking, geez, how yeah, it's been through a lot. And then that's what made me cry. That that part there, yeah. when I just thought, like you can't even compare. You know, when you get an injury, for example, footy injury or whatever, and it's injury after injury after injury, and then the rehab after rehab after rehab, you can't even like that. That's I don't know why. Like it's obviously not even parallel to that. But that's that's what was going through my head. I'm thinking, my God, like how how could that happen? Like mm-hmm. how could you consistently go through that? And then that was the thing I was up when I say about mindset. That was the part where I was thinking. What do you do? Like, where you turn to? And obviously, that was the moment. Yeah, the Josh. You know, it's it's all about mindfulness and um, making sure that you compartmentalise things. And um, no, I really had to compartmentalise, you know, where my illness was. And uh, certainly, you know, although it was really difficult um, to know that there was further tumours and I had to go through the process again, you know, certainly wallowing in, in my own self pity wasn't going to get me there. Mm. And um, you know, I had a lot of people to to live for, and certainly Jane, um, who was it was I was taking, you know, we were, we were dating at the time, is now my wife. Um, you know, that was another another important factor in my you know development and making sure rehabilitating. Um, you know, obviously my family, and and just importantly my own self belief that um, you know I certainly had a lot more to um, to achieve and. Mm. Uh, you know, and that process of going in, having surgery, having tre- having tre- you know, certainly um, a scan between '89 and '94, I, I spent more time in hospital than I did out. And I had, um, I think, a further 17, 18 tumours out. So between '983, I had the one tumour that was seven centimetres, but between '89 and '94, I had an additional 19 tumours out. So as I said, I spent more time in hospital than I did out. Yeah, far out. And then, like, it would, would have been just consuming your head headspace, wouldn't it? Yeah, it did. Um, like, do I have to get yeah, the scan after scan yeah, after scan? Yeah, it did. Um, there's no doubt about that. I I certainly, um, when I finally got a clear scan, you know, um, that was a significant day in our lives. Yeah. Um, Celebrating those wins. Yeah, So and you do. You, you celebrate the small little wins along the journey. Um however big they are and uh, yeah I'm incredibly fortunate you know um, you know it's, as I said it's nearly 40 years later and uh, and I'm still doing things that I really enjoy yeah. there's no doubt that um, there are things that uh, I'm limited doing now um, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later but uh, you know in 2019 in November you know I, I certainly lost the capacity to walk unaided and um that comes and goes a bit, but uh, certainly coming more off frequently now than than yeah. it was. Um, I certainly wouldn't be able to take one step unaided without the use of a walking frame. Okay. And uh, I've got an electric scooter, um, and that gives me independence, and uh, which is great. And uh, you know, it is a disability, and it's probably the first time in my life I've ever thought I've had disability. Yeah. Um, but in over in the re, you know in recent times, I've certainly processed that and uh, come to the point where, and I have acknowledged that I, although I've got a disability, um, 
I can still have a significant impact on the flatties of this world who I love. Flatty, good fellow, isn't he? Because he's, he's, he would have been hard back then, was he? He is rough. One of, one of the hardest he uh, people he, I've ever faced. <laughs> he is. He's a really, he's a great man. Yeah, I didn't sure. realise where, because he used to say great man at Navarre all the time. And then when Probably he said, came from me. It, oh, that's exactly where it came from. It came from you. He's the great man. And I was like, geez, no way. All, all after there all you these go. years. Isn't that amazing? Great. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, so you, where did St. Pat's come into this? Like, when did you move down to Ballarat? Yeah, no, no, no. I, I did uni at Ballarat. Yep. And met Jane, who uh, is a Ballarat girl. Yep. And um, so I stayed in Ballarat. So I've been in Ballarat over 30 years now. Okay. And, um, and Ballarat is very much central to, to my heart, you know. It's a great community, and, um, and I've certainly invested in the community. Um, and the Better community has been very, very good to me. Awesome. Yeah. It's a good spot, like I said. Oh, it's a great spot. You know, and uh, certainly, you know, we've we've raised our children here, and um, yeah, it's very much home for us. Definitely. Um, but how did the footy come about? So how did that all? Like, did you apply for a job there? Did they come? Yeah, to no, you? no, no. I, I. Back in nine, as I said, I was t- teaching um, in the east at uh, St. Van Saviour. Yep. And at the time, um, about 1995, 1996, I was part of a um, transition team at the Catholic Education Department. And, um, and there, was a, there was a program running that you could link up with a, a, another colleague, a teacher from another school, and do a swap for 12 months. Okay. So I swapped with a, a friend called Jacinta Waddington, who is now, yeah, and uh, Mark and uh, Jacinta, you know, as fortuitously and as it's come come through, it, uh, it's probably my closest friend. Awesome. And um, Jacinta and I swapped, and uh, Jacinta, who was working at St. Pat's at the time, um, her and I, we were in boarding, at, I was boarding at St. Pat's, at the, and, uh, and I just said, what about we have a look at swapping? And which she did. She loved it at, at Villa, at St. Fran Saviour. I loved it at St. Pat's, and, um, and I was offered a, an ongoing role at St. Pat's, you know, in about the 1995, 96 period. Yeah, awesome. And from there, you know, I I coached a year 10 side um, my first year, um, and uh, and Jared Ryan was coaching the first 18 at the time. You know, I, I wanted to give back something, you know, I, although I knew I couldn't play footy, I wanted to give back, you know, to the community, back to the, the school that I, that I was involved in, you know, in footy, and... Um, and so I started uh, about 2002, I think. Um, no, I mean, I would have made 2001. I started uh, coaching the first 18. Yeah. Yeah. About wow. then. Um, so footy, footy was a, a pretty big, big part of my life too, and I feel like um, it it taught me a lot of discipline. Yeah. Um, I think sports do. I think everybody should be involved in some sort of sport or Agreed. some sort of community or something Agreed. like that. Um, and I think when I think about Flatty and Parco and boys like that when they were coaching, you look up to somebody like that so much, yeah. And you just hold them on that pedestal. Yeah. Someone like yourself, and that's what I talk about. I think it's really important to have that. Um, I don't know if it's idle, but like a what word am I looking for? You have mental. Yeah, just, yeah, mental. That's exactly what I'm after. Um, so how did you go about? Like, is there a way that you do your coaching? Like, are you, are you as much on on field as off field? I just think you need to be authentic in your relationships with the boys. Um, the boys need to know that you respect them. Uh, they need to know that you can be vulnerable with them. And they need to know that what you're teaching them is going to provide them with opportunities. Mm-hmm. And um, and I don't mean playing A for footy. I just mean playing an opportunities at a higher level, yeah. whatever it is. Um, the relationships you develop are really important and they've got to be. If they're not life enriching for both of you, then you're failing that young man. Mm-hmm. And I'm really big on that, that when they leave the program that you're, that you're leading, they, they need to be better citizens and men of respect for women, men of respect for each other, men of respect for the game, men of respect for Values. It's all got to be at all about values driven, yep. and if it's not, then I've failed them. Yep. And um, so, as I said, I've got to be authentic in my relationship with them. Yeah. How did you go about like so? That first initial eighteen thing. Was there a certain way you do that at camps, or was it? Yeah, just... camps are really important. Um, you know, certainly when I when I took over, 
um, it was a was a period of the the rebels at the time where the rebels had just joined up with the um, the Geelong Falcons, and sorry, they just split with the Geelong Falcons and. And I remember my first day in, I, I was coaching and um, it was and it was two thirds through the third quarter. And I remember we were playing Ballarat Clarendon College. And um, at that stage, Clarendon were about 80 points. We hadn't scored. Yeah. Our football program had really deteriorated. You know, everyone thinks St. Pat's has got a really strong footy culture and really, you know, it's been outstanding all the way through. You know, mostly yes, but certainly it wasn't always. Yeah. And um, you know, from there, it was a really important. We we developed a strategic plan that Mark Waddington led, and I and I certainly think that Mark's involvement in the in writing the strategic plan became a blueprint for our success over a period of time. We developed a, a three year um, football camp initiative, yeah. yep. and that was the first year was to Melbourne um, that uh, for four day experience where we would link in with a lot of the AFL clubs um, and also some some of the AFL boys that are playing were in the system from the school. Yep. The following year we would go to Darwin and we would do the Marne Grook, which means the um, the birthplace of Australian rules football. Okay. Marne Grook being indigenous. So we go to the Tiwi Islands, we go to um, we go deep sea deep, deep sea fishing in the Darwin Harbour. We go down to Kakadu, we go down to um, we go and run remote clinics in indigenous communities. It's one of life's great experiences. How how many days is that? Yeah, for uh, for eight nights. Yeah, eight nights, awesome. Yeah, so it's mag- it's magnificent. Just with all the boys. Yeah, and just, so yeah. we take fifty boys. Wow. And uh, and there's nine staff. Great. And uh, and so we go Darwin next year, for example. Yep. And then on the third year of the program, we do a uh, we go to Ireland and we play the international rules. Um, so we play Connick, Munster and Leinster, which are the three provinces of Ireland. And we also play a game down in um, Slotnia or certainly um, play down in um, Mahara, which is in Northern Ireland. And uh, it's a magnificent opportunity. Yeah. We, we, we go for 15 nights. So we spend seven, eight days in um, Ireland and then we spend an additional probably five or six days in, in London. Wow. That's yeah, pretty, so it's a pretty big experience. Yeah, it's a great experience. Yeah. It's magnificent, and and that's where you develop your culture. Yeah. You know, um, by travelling abroad, by travelling, you know, certainly to the Northern Territory, by sharing life experiences and living the experiences with these guys, it um, you know it goes so far. Mm. And uh, you know, I think that's what that was a huge turning point, turning point for our program. Big time. What about training side of things for the for the boys? Are you yeah, in charge of all that? Yeah, yep. Yeah, I'm not now. Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm the director of football in the school and I oversee the programs. But Gavin Webb, Jared Jean Polo, and Stephen Biggin, you know, certainly coach the, the program now. But Gavin Webb is the central the head, the head coach. Um, but you know, certainly I was when I was coaching, I was we were training one night a week. But it could be you know, to say video analysis of one of the game. You know, it may be because they most of them playing in the rebel system or they're playing at um, senior level or, or community level um, you know they're getting a lot of footy so the last thing they need is to be you're running on the track on a Monday mm. night so a lot of it is video based and uh, you know boys need to learn by vi- by being visual and uh, through, through their education through that visual stimulus they learn by seeing themselves you know and in their division yeah wow and same thing with mindset. Is that do you bring people in for that? Absolutely. Or is that, yeah. yeah, we do. We do. Uh, believe it or not, we do um, meditation. Awesome. Yeah. We uh, certainly. We, Ryan um, Waite would come in, and uh, he would. Oh, Ryan. Yeah. 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 yeah really yeah. good, great mate of mine. Yep. And he would come in probably every two out of three training runs, yep. and for half an hour he would run a uh, a mindfulness stretching um, meditation. Um, yeah, session. Yeah, formed a very important part of basis of um, of our success. Definitely, I think it's it's getting a lot bigger now too. Yeah, there's no doubt. Um, you know, obviously I see. had a stigma attached to it. I think mm. in the younger days, mm. um, but nowadays, like huge in AFL, like it's yeah. hu- it's huge everywhere. I do uh, meditation every night. Guided. I do. Yeah. Um, I it's part of my uh, 
you know, I've got NEIS funding, which has been magnificent and uh, it's a great organisation that support people with disabilities. Yeah. And um, I'd never seen a psychologist all the way through my whole, you know, um, journey. But through the NDIS, they certainly um, recommended I went to a psychologist, which I've been doing for the last probably 18 months, two years. Yep. And so once a fortnight, I go there and uh, I do a lot of guided meditation. Um, oh, so with them, not like with an apple? Okay, correct, wow, impressive. Correct. Wow. Yep. So we do probably half an hour of meditation, um, you know, with a guy called Darren. Um, Lost it. Darren something. Uh, Darren, that's okay, Des. That's right. um, so, uh, yeah, so it's great. And we uh, we uh, you know, do meditation every fortnight. But I do it. I've got apps on my phone. They are Headspace um, or something. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And yeah. also, you know, yeah, there's various programs available that that we all we can use. But um, you know, it's it's been really important my my recovery and I experience a lot of pain. Um, the pain is quite intense at times. For example, when my legs are at ten and they're at ten frequently, they are, they they say that um, you know kidney stones are quite painful. There was one year I had, would have had 30 to 35, 40 kidney stones in, you know, in the one year. Um, I was having wow. surgery repeatedly to remove them, but also I had to remove them myself. What, what's that? What's that from? Like how? Well, no, just just my body. Wow, you know? Jesus Christ, Howard. And when kidney the kidney stone pain was a four compared to my leg pain when they were ten. Wow, there is that much difference. It's, it's what do you mean by leg pain? Like I just ate yeah, no, or? it's just it's just. Um, it's just like this fierce uh, shooting pain in my leg. It'll just grab like a contraction, like a like a um, like, a, like cramp. a cramp. Yeah, okay. But the most significant cramp that you can receive, and then it'll release, and it'll come when it's bad. It'll come every 15, 20 seconds. It'll it'll stay for between twenty to thirty seconds, and that could last for fifteen hours, and Jeez. it is incredibly. It can be incredibly tough, um, and that's when I've got the ability to inject myself with morphine. Yeah. Um, when morphine doesn't work, I'll then I'll then meditate, and um, so I go into a, in a, this central zone where I meditate to try and you know alleviate the pain, and it does work. So, in, so like just be jabbing yourself in the leg sort of thing. So no no no, I will go into a, a zone in my own head. Oh, sorry, with the morphine, with, I mean. With the more, yeah, so I just inject myself morphine. Wow. And that doesn't work because the, the pain's too intense. Yeah. I'll then, you know, do meditation. Far out. And Darren Gannon, who is the psychologist, has certainly assisted me with that. Wow, eh? Yeah, I'm scared of needles for one. <laughs> I'm petrified. When, no, I've got no feeling in the... From, I've got very, very limited feeling from the waist down now. Okay. So I've got no feeling at all in my thighs. So I inject myself, can't feel at all. Wow, hey. So that's a bonus. Yeah, that I guess so. That's just, a <laughs> um, back to the the coaching side of things. Yeah. I was just wondering if you had any tips for anybody that wants to get into coaching in some you know, local leagues or just enjoy it. You know, you've got to have a love for it, um, and don't be concerned to say no. Um, for example, um, there was we were I was coaching it was the semi final of the Herald Shield, and the Herald Shield is the Premier um, program, Premier competition in the state, and we were going for our fourth consecutive Herald Shield, and no other school in Australia had ever done that. We were playing St Joey's Geelong, and they were probably going to be our most difficult um, competition for that year. They were probably the favourites to win it. Yep. Equal with us. On the Monday night preceding the other uh, Wednesday game. We trained, and, uh, and one of our key components was you either train, or if you didn't train, you have to let me know. There was a guy called Daniel Rioli, who most people would know, three-time premiership player at Richmond. Mm-hmm. There was a guy called Yesterneeds who got drafted to Essendon. There was a guy called Mikaja Rodham-Onis, who's at um, East Point, and a uh, legend at East Point now. Yeah, yeah, no, yep. Yep, um, won the medal for the yeah, best of ground. Yeah, I was there, yeah. yep, I remember. And there was a guy called Ezekiel Frank who was a centre-half forward for the um, Northern Territory state side that year. All were in the state Northern Territory team. They were probably four of my top eight players. On the Monday night, they went down to buy a pair of football boots. They are all Indigenous boys. 
great young men went down to buy a pair of footy boots. Unfortunately, they didn't let me know. Where that where they go? Yeah, to buy a pair of footy boots down down the shop shit down in town here in Ballarat. Right. I rang them, rang them, rang them. No answer. Yeah. We had three choices to make the next day because we were playing on the following day on the Wednesday. Down in Melbourne. Yep, in yeah. Melbourne. Yeah. The three choices that was the semi final. So the three choices were that they start on the bench for the quarter, first quarter, and they came on. Second quarter, second option was that we just let it go. Spoke to them, just let it go. And then they just played. And then the third option was that they didn't play and they didn't come. I think you had to go third option. Correct. Yeah. It was a non-brainer, yeah. a no-brainer. Yeah. You know, if we develop, a, if we want to develop a culture of excellence and being authentic to all the boys in the program... You can't pick and choose. You can't pick and choose. Mm. And so, therefore, they were, they were very... They very clearly understood what they'd done was wrong. Yep. But they very clearly understood that what we chose to do. And I brought the leadership group in. I said, fellas, what, do you want? what should we do? They said, they don't play. And I said, totally support your decision. I agree with you totally. Mm-hmm. So I said, it's your decision and I will back you totally. So we brought the boys in. So the leadership team expressed, told them exactly what was happening, that they weren't playing and they weren't coming the following day. We were certainly not a better. We, we were certainly an inferior side because of it. At three quarter time, we were level. And even if we had got beaten, I would have been really proud of the decision that was made that day. Mm-hmm. Fortuitously, we um, won by twenty five points. Had a really good last quarter. They were the first boys at training the following day, the following Monday night. We went on to win the Herald Shield Grand Final at the MCG by seventy odd points, and uh, it certainly become an important. Um, starting point when you talk about t- to boys about uh, expectations and I keep saying if Daniel Rioli is a three time premiership player we didn't play him we have, a, we have an expectation on all of you yeah. you know whether they're indigenous non-indigenous you know whatever we have the same expectations on all the boys once you condone inappropriate behaviour you set these boys up for failure mm-hmm. you can't allow them or condone them their actions if it's in, in, inappropriate I like that. So the short answer is you can say no. Absolutely. Yeah, like Not that. only can you say no, it's really important you say no. Yeah. It's good. So I think a lot of, not many people these days would be doing something like that, yeah. especially to best players. But I think that is, like you talk about culture, that is right there. That's that's the... The only thing is when you brand. do it, when you do it, you do it with respect. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. 100%. That's the basis. You know, you can you can be a, do it with a sledgehammer or you can do it with be a sloth velvet. Yeah. But if you have a relationship with these boys and the players that you that are entrusted within your group that you're you're entrusted within this group. So what you need to do is develop a relationship with them of one of respect. You know, if they, you respect them, they respect you, they will respect the decision that is made. I was gonna say because they obviously respected the decision, so they they were in that culture like they Absolutely. Yeah. They were really awesome. bought into it. Um what do you think the biggest lesson the boys have taught you is? Oh, humility. I remember we won six in a row and um, and that certainly was unprecedented. And I remember we were going for our seventh, obviously, on the MCG and we were, I think, 30-odd points down at three-quarter time of the Herald Shield final and we were playing St. Joey's Geelong again. Yep. And... Um, I remember we were with five seconds, ten seconds to go. Uh, one of our boys, um, who was a really talented player, was 30, 40 metres out on a probably a 45 degree angle. He took took the mark, we were one point down. They were playing the game out until the end. The siren would have gone, obviously, but they were going to play it out until the end. Mm-hmm. And so if we had a kick to point, then it would have been the first person scores, wins. We had all the momentum. You know, they, I don't think they scored in the last quarter. Yep. Anyway, very sadly, disappointed, very sadly for this young man. Um, he, you know, it was, it was a windy day. You know, probably he probably would have kicked, the, kicked at least something, probably nine out of ten times. He kicked out in the fall. Poor kid. I was really proud of the boys that they, that, you know, they were humble always in victory. 
but they were so gracious in their defeat of the of St. Joseph's Geelong. And they were really gracious around, you know, St. Joseph's, but they were so good around this young man, you know. And that's what it's all about. It's the life lessons. You learn more through your mistakes and through you learn through more through disappointments than you do by by continuing winning and, and having these up moments. Yep. It's like resilience. I don't believe you can be truly resilient until you're exposed to resilient situations. Yep. So for me, you know, although it's been a difficult journey along the way, I'm incredibly blessed. You know, my three children are really resilient young men. Why? Because all they've ever known is their dad to be sick. I was going to say, they've been through some adversity. And they, and they have, you know. So therefore, they've experienced all the ups and downs. You know, most nights I'm in bed by 7 o'clock. Why? Because my body needs it. You know, I'm awake a lot of the night because my, my legs never settle and they're always twitching and they're always grabbing, they're always cramping, they're always doing something. And so as a result, I hardly sleep. So I, my body needs time to, to recover. Mm-hmm. So I'm in bed by 7, 7.30. And that's all I've ever known. Yep. You know, I've got an ileostomy bag now. I, see, I self-catheterized for over 10 years. I don't self-catheterize now because I kept on getting infections over a, probably a three and a half year period that caused some most significant issues. But, um, you know, they're the journeys I've experienced along the way in recent times. And, you know, my boys are resilient. You know, because with COVID, it's a really tough time for a lot of these young kids. Mm. But they're being exposed to really difficult times. But we can make it into a really positive experience for them. Because, you know, a lot of them haven't experienced, you know, hardships before. So now they're being exposed to difficult situations. And once they get through it, and they will get through it, most of them, hopefully all of them. Yep. Most of them. Um... They will keep building, having building blocks to becoming resilient young men and women. Definitely. Yeah, true. I haven't really thought about it like that. Yeah. That's good. How old are your kids now? Sorry, mate. How old are your kids now? Yeah, Will is uh, 24 in November. Yep. Um, Tom is uh, 22 in April. And uh, and James um, is, uh, nine, is sorry, is 17. And uh, he's the same. Pat's doing year 11, doing year 12 next year. Yeah, awesome. Um, let's talk about some habits. So what habits, apart from your meditation, do you have at the moment? Like is there a routine that you follow every morning or you just take it as it comes? No, um, in the mornings, it uh, depends. Like if, I had a, if I've had a bad night, like for example, Monday night, I had a leg pain, so I was awake at about 1 o'clock in the morning. Just straight, like 1, one, one a.m.? And then stay up? And then I've stayed up. Yep. Um, so... Disappointingly for school, I probably didn't. I wasn't probably wasn't uh, my best at school. Understandable. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's not fair on the the boys, but you know they're very tolerant and accepting. Um, but uh, that doesn't happen all the time. But you know, I certainly get leg pain, you know, all the time. But um, it's not to the levels where I require, you know, either liquid morphine or certainly the or the injection morphine. And um, I certainly had the liquid morphine. On that Monday night, just gone, um, and uh, you know, I'm on steroids now. And uh, steroids, um, I wasn't a really high dose of what they call dexamethasone. It's a really, it's quite a brutal drug, okay. and you don't sleep with it, and you really don't sleep with it. Um, so Is it it's tablets. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a tablet form. Um, but uh, I'm on a much softer, you know, steroid now, and um, and with which is called prednisolone. And uh, it's allowing me to, to sleep. So for nine weeks, I hardly slept. And I mean, ha- if I slept, it would have been for two hours a night. That was it. And you're still going to school? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but it was when remote learning was on. So, oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. So if there is a God, there, for me, there, there is a God. And um, I was able to talk, teach remotely. And, uh, you know, certainly I could teach from, you know, certainly from the couch and then I could just relax and take it easy yeah. post when I wasn't teaching yeah. so you know it made, it made things a lot easier for me mm, yeah definitely um, let's head to some questions so Please. I didn't send you these last night and normally I do prep people no so or, or, absolutely let's, let's see how we go here good on you uh, what's something people would be surprised to know about you Oof. 
wasn't on that name. Um, it's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah, no, That's right. why I said I should have sent it to you last right. night. But um, it, probably not really. Very poorly, I'd bite my nails, and I, <laughs> I should something I'd. Uh, I Jesus, was, that's the worst thing. Well, yeah, that is bad. Um, I yeah, I'm weak in a lot of areas, but I've, I'm fortunate fortunate that I'm strong in my areas of um, of with my health. Yeah, you know, um, I really value our community, um, and I think that's really important and. Uh, and the better community is really dear to my to, to my health um, and my well-being. And um, certainly, probably the thing that they probably don't know about me is that um, my whole medical team, led by Tony Bongiorno, who is my GP, who has just been remarkable. And um, in, in this whole time, a medical team is central to my well-being, and uh, you, I couldn't do it without a complete team around me. They're all they're from Melbourne, or Ballarat, Melbourne. Yeah, Melbourne based, but yeah. Tony Bongiorno is Ballarat based. Okay. Um, but uh, you know, I've got a neurosurgeon, I've got a neurologist, I've got an oncologist, um, I've got you know a GP, um, I've got Bruce Stewart, who's a specialist here, a surgeon here, who's operated on me several times. Um, so yeah, it's it's that whole team approach that um, you know that holistic component component is uh, is really important to me. Yeah, awesome. Um, what do you love most, apart from family? The family. Okay. Apart from family. <laughs> um, family, obviously, is number one, and number one, two, and three. Yep. Uh, the boys that I teach. Yeah. And um, very clearly, and St. Patrick's College, you know, um, I often say that, you know, you don't live to work, but in my case, uh, the work and the boys that I teach. Um, it's your passion. Is my passion, it's my love. Mm. And, you know, people probably say to me, often say to me, why are you still working? And um, the boys that I teach give me the energy. And I really mean it. And, you know, every time that I speak to a boy or they come and see me, um, I'm certainly more enriched because of that. And that's why I, I coach for so long. And uh, and that's why I'm continuing to teach because, as you just said, it's my passion. Yep. I can imagine that there's not many kids that, like, you obviously so well respected in the community and the school but there's not too many kids mucking around like they'd be mm-hmm. very like yeah you know, they're a little bit cheeky but no, it's like they understand your I'm, respect yeah like, I, i'm i'm really fortunate in that regard you know if you've been there for so long with 26 years yeah the boys don't certainly misbehave nah. you know and when you get to a point like that it just becomes all about teaching um it's you're not worrying about what's happening in the classroom or their behavior mm-hmm because hopefully the um, some of the strategies I've learned along the way and the respect that hopefully I show the boys, um, they reciprocated in spades. And uh, so, yeah, they certainly don't misbehave. No, it sort of reminds me of like um, when my dad would go off me, for example, uh, but that's not the bit that affected me. It was when he was really disappointed yeah, because you right. really respect them and their decisions and that. And then when they say they're disappointed, that's the biggest Josh, killer. Josh, I agree with you. Yeah. I agree. Um, awesome. What are you? What are you most afraid of? Oh, uh, yeah. I, I used to be afraid of dying. Um, uh, probably not so much now. Um, yep. You know, because I, I I'll, I'll probably outsee you, all of you. I think. Um, <laughs> that's uh, and I don't. I, I mean that flippantly, but yeah. I certainly, although. My journey's been tough. Um, you know, I, I'm pretty much in control of it. Yep. Um, but there's no doubt that, you know, there will be a time where my body says enough's enough. Um, and I'm worried, concerned that, you know, I, I want to see my boys yeah. grow up, you know. And, and that's 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 what I, that's my aim. And certainly that's what keeps driving me and, and my love of Jane, you know. And... And my family, my you know brothers and sisters, my mum, you know, my dad passed away eighteen months ago, and um, for me, that's probably the thing that uh, concerns me most. Eighteen months ago. Yeah. Jeez, Christmas Day, eighteen months ago, dad died. Oh. So yeah. 
Um, Far out. What was that? Did you sorry. Yeah, he uh, he had emphysema. Okay. Um, Dad uh, was a was a horrible smoker, and um, so it's something that we we would never do. And uh, he probably smoked two packets a day. Yep. Um, beautiful man, but he had a terrible habit of smoking. Yeah. And um, he de- developed emphysema as a result of it. How old was he? Yeah, he was 84 at the time. 84. Um, yep. So it was good innings, and uh, you know he had a really fortunate life. Um, but uh, yeah, Dad you know, died Christmas Day, and he always said he wanted to get to Christmas Day. Oh, and really? Yeah, you wanted to said that? He then? did, and wow. he died at he died at 12:05 Christmas morning AM. So five minutes into the Christmas Day, he died. Quite incredible. Oh, I was going to say that's yeah, incredible, wasn't it? It was spookily incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, what's something someone has said to you in your life that has never left you? Like, could be a mentor yeah. or someone you really look up to? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I remember Jared Fitzgerald was a really good man. Who's that one? Sorry? Jared Fitzgerald. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, you know, I've learned a lot of life values from Fitz. And um, he always, he, he told me one time, Make sure the program that you're in, you stay long enough that it's just not a fleeting moment. And and when he was meeting St. Pat's College at the time, and he said, don't just be there for two or three years. Make sure when you're in it, that you're in it for the long haul so you, that you can create a legacy for these young men. Yep. And I remember when I retired at 19 years of coaching it, he said, uh, you're, you know, I upheld and I was true to his statement. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the, hopefully I've, sent, I've left a legacy for others to follow. And The brand. I think and, you've left a brand. Yeah, like, and, and the brand, you know, yeah. and that's right. You know, there is a culture within the program that resonates and um, and it drives it now. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm certainly still involved in the, in the school program. Um, I still oversee it, but... You know, it's up to the you know Gavin and you know Jarrett and Stephen and other guys now to take it on and and girls, you know. Um, but I will certainly be there in support role t- to try and help drive the culture of the program. Yeah, awesome. I love that one. Do you still talk to Fitzy at all? Yeah, I do. Yeah, it's where did he go? Hamilton? No, no, uh, no. He did go to Hamilton, but he's now he's now not coaching at all now. No, and uh, he's on the he's on the farm. No, he's given up foot. Oh, he's, he's, co- he's a coaching. Yeah, he's, yeah. Oh, yeah. He said he wants to help out with the St. Pat's program. Yep. So um, he'd be fantastic, but uh, you know that still will still be negotiating in discussions. But um, yeah, he's, he's back on the farm at Darren Allen with, uh, wow. with his wife and family. Can't beat farm life. Exactly right. It's awesome. Um, is there anyone you'd like to see on the podcast next? Anyone around Second town? Mate. Is there anyone on in town that you'd like to see on the podcast next? Okay, wow. Someone that you might really look yeah. up to or want to know their story oh, a bit more? Or? People like Steve Monaghetti is a remarkable Ballarat community-minded person. Yep. Um, Steve Anderson... I've tried. He said episode 100. That's what he told me. Tom 20, what, 20, He would be, and he'd be fantastic. Yep. You know, um, uh, yeah, uh, George Kanarakis. George Kanarakis. George Kanarakis is head of the oncology department in Ballarat. Okay, yep. Remarkable human being. Yep. Um, what he's given to Ballarat, not, not, no, what he's given to society is phenomenal. Yep. And uh, he's someone that I would look, I look up to incredibly. Tony Bongiorno, my GP, is the, is the most beautiful man and uh, he'd be great. Very funny man. Yeah. Much yeah. funnier than me. Yes. <laughs> um, but he's great. Um, yeah. Brent Flood would be a lot of fun. Floody. I don't know. The great man. On. The I great man. I'll have to send him this. Uh, I hope he listens. He will um, listen for sure. Yeah. So, uh, Floody would be great. Yeah. You know? um, Did you know Ian? You would have known Ian then. I know Ian and Doreen. Yeah. Yeah, Doors. They're a beautiful family. They are. Good people. Um, they are. Well, he worked. So, he worked for my dad. Did he? Yeah, in Horsham. At, okay. When he was doing all the wool stuff. Yeah. At, at one point in time. Yeah. I don't think it was Elders. I don't know if it was Elders time. I don't know if I'm asking that. Okay. Yeah. So, so they keep. So there's some key people, you yep. know, um, that would be 
would be great. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Awesome. Um, anything else you want the listeners to know? Out there no, in no, no. Just, um, just can, you know, if you have got an illness or whether, you know, it's a physical or, or, or emotional or mental illness, um, surround yourself with like-minded people. And, uh, you know, I've got a, a saying, the friends you surround yourself with are the window to your soul. And it's, I keep saying it to the boys that I teach. And what I mean by that is, if you surround yourself with mediocrity, that's all you'll ever achieve. Yep. If you surround yourself with the people who want to achieve to the, to the best they can, you will achieve success. Yep. In my case, you know, when you have an illness, you can't do it in isolation, you can't do it by yourself. So if you surround yourself with like-minded people, and it doesn't need to be many, in fact, you can't have many. But if you surround yourself with four or five really key people, and uh, and and use their energy, use their positivity, then that can only be a really positive outcome for you. Yeah, I think it's everything. Like the old saying, uh, if you hang around the barbershop long enough, you're gonna get a haircut. Yeah, I like that. Um, yeah, that's, I really, that's one I like. I really, really like that because it's everything. Like if you're <laughs> around positive people, then you're gonna be positive. If you're around people that are in business, majority of the time you're gonna be doing something with business or just, it's just, flows i agree josh yeah, agree yeah. i really appreciate you coming on uh, i'm so thank glad you. steve set this up for us pleasure. um but yeah thanks so much mate pleasure and all the appreciate very best and thank you for the opportunity to uh, share my story no worries at all. because mate appreciate we've all got a story to share we all do have a story everyone's exactly. got, a, got somewhere to come from so appreciate how pleasure mate. thanks so much take care thanks for tuning in team once again we appreciate any reviews you've got down below have a great day